Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From 1947 to 2000, some 50,000 Native American children left the reservations to live with Mormon foster families. While some dropped out of the Indian Student Placement Program, for others, the months spent living with LDS families often proved more penetrating than expected. The Indian Student Placement Program emerged in the mid-20th century, championed by Apostle Spencer W. Kimball, aligned with the then-national preferences to terminate tribal entities and assimilate indigenous peoples. But as the paradigm shifted to self-determination, critics labeled the program as crudely assimilationist. A new book out from University of Utah Press called Making Lamanites traces this student experience within the contested cultural and institutional landscapes to reveal how and why many of these Native youth adopted a new notion of Indianness. The author is Matthew Garrett. He's professor of history at Bakersfield College. He also works with the College Archives. He's editor for the College's Roughneck Review, recently joined the editorial board of the Journal of Mormon History, and is the recipient of the Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies for Making Lamanites. Matthew Garrett, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you uh, uh, speaking with, with me today. Uh, I just wanted to start with a personal note. Um, you say in your introduction, as you got into history, uh, a professor too suggested you do some uh, uh, work in the area of Mormon studies. You wanted to stay as far away from that as possible. Now you're the winner of the Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies, and you've joined the, uh, uh, the editorial board of Journal of Mormon History. What, uh, what changed? Yeah, I guess I just, an itch that just wouldn't go away, you know. I, I really, my, my training is more so in Native American history. That's where my background is. But I've got that cultural background of, of an LDS family, and it just, it kept being this curiosity in the back of my mind. And I, I just would try to do a paper here or a paper there just to sort of appease it and curiosities here and there. And it just kept growing. And, uh, and I finally, I, I found out as I was, doing some doctoral research before I was even on this topic at all, that uh, my parents, when, before I was born, my parents had participated in the placement program. And so I, now I was really curious. I, I, couldn't, had no, I didn't even know what the program was until I was in my graduate study. I'd never heard of it. And so it, it really kind of confirmed to me that this is something I, I, I enjoy it. I like it. It's close to my heart. It's close to my research. Um, and it's something I wanted to, to go ahead and do. So here I am doing Mormon history um, and the, Native American history, the, the, both things you, that I love. There you go, both. Uh, by the way, the, the sound quality of the phone is a little little low. Uh, I don't know if you're on speakerphone or maybe you could put the the uh, mouthpiece uh, closer to your mouth. Any better for you? Yeah, yeah, that sounds a little better. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, so you mentioned that, and this is something you you found out that your your parents had had participated in this program. This is something you found out later, looking at photographs. So, uh, a couple of young women, Roberta and Ellen, from the reservation, had been hosted by your parents. Yes, they. Um, I guess I, you know, I was just trying to be a good son and help take care of my my parents and clean up their attic one day, and and there are these these photos of girls sitting in front of a Christmas tree, which is in my house, and they're sitting at my dinner table, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm studying Native American history at, at Arizona State University, and, and who are these Indians in my house that I've never seen before? And I was confused, and I, I started to put things together and ask my parents, and I said, yeah, for only for a few months, I think it was like five or four months or something like that, they participated in the program. They had been asked by their local bishop to participate, and so they did, but it didn't work out for them, and they, they stopped participating, but they had a few old pictures that were kicking around the attic, and, and that kind of was really strange and surprising to me to see, and it got me even more curious. 
I should note uh, for our listeners, I have a personal interest in this as well. My parents hosted four boys, um, and so I I had four Indian brothers over over the years. Uh, the first of which was a kind of an older brother that I never had. I'm the oldest of of eight children, uh, and then the last two were sort of, sort of more sibling rivals. Uh, but uh, very personal experience in in my family. Um, so to put this in context. Um, Maybe we could start with uh, you know, some Mormon uh, theology, and that gets us into identity, and later on we'll get into um, you know, cultural assimilation and uh, colonialism. Uh, there was pushback uh, to, to the program. Talk about the positives as well. Um, why, did, uh, why did the Apostle Spencer W. Kimball push this uh, so much? Well, you know, it of course ties back to the doctrine that I'm sure a lot of the Utah listeners are familiar with, that the Book of Mormon... You know, in 1830, has obviously an important place for Native American people, that they're the, the, uh, the rem, this remnant piece of Israelites that has come to America. And so they have this, this, destined, this theology that destines them for a sort of restoration. And that was something that really had fueled some early missionary efforts. It had fueled uh, outreach, some demonstration farms. There were some early efforts in Utah when the Saints first arrived to, to reach out to Native Americans, but it didn't really work out very well. There was competition over resources and more practical things that slowed those efforts, and eventually those programs faded away. But by the mid-1940s you know, or so, there's still some people that I think are keeping the candle burning, the people that are the Mormons who are living on or near the reservation, who are traders, who are employing Native Americans as migrant laborers. There are some people that are still engaged in that theology a little bit and excited about it, even though I think most Mormons would kind of put it aside a little bit. And and so you have this young woman, Helen John, a Navajo girl whose family was migrant laborers that came on to, to work at, on a field in Richfield, Utah, and, and her family was there working, and I guess one of the local white Mormon women, uh, Amy Avery, would reach out to her and invite her to participate and to, to come into their home and to do sing songs with her children and to play games with her children and she started to teach her to read, and uh, eventually she and Golden Buchanan, a local state presidency member, uh, said, hey, why don't you stay around, and you could go to school, and this would be a great opportunity for you. And, and then in a letter to President Kimball, Golden Buchanan explained that this could be the way that we finally fulfill that theological destiny that just has sort of been ignored for a little while, that this could be the way that we bring hundreds, thousands of Native American Lamanites into the church and into this proper, true destiny that they've got for them. So there's quite a bit of excitement going on there in the 1940s and 50s and 60s as this program is, is organizing. I wonder if you could compare and contrast then this idea, this identity, uh, based in the Book of Mormon, uh, Mormon Scripture, uh, the Lamanites are, you know, part, they're Israelites, right? And compare and contrast that with what's going on in terms of terminating tribal identities and assimilating indigenous peoples. This this is, in a way, a, a, an identity that uh, I guess some Indian people embraced. Be, you know, becoming Lamanites—the title of the uh, book. Right, right. So, um, you know, obviously, a lot of the participants in the program uh, were not happy and left the program and didn't continue. And their records are minimal. There's not a lot to find because they retreated back to the reservation and went about their lives. But then there are those who participated and loved the program and thought that it was wonderful and it gave them this new identity as a Lamanite. And, uh, and though their records are available because they're open about it, they're out to be found, they've been interviewed, there's, there's um, interviews at 
and the church holdings at the Salt Lake and in BYU, and we can read and learn all about these folks. And a lot of these people, they were really excited about the Lamanite identity. They felt like it gave them some sort of hope and some potential. Imagine that you're a Navajo Indian living on the reservation in 1930 or 40, and there's really a lot of poverty. There's not a lot of there's disease. There's insufficient medical needs. There's insufficient education. The tribal council itself is, is calling for education. They're sending delegations to D.C. asking for more schools. Uh, there was even negotiations with the church a little bit to build a Mormon boarding school on the Navajo reservation. There's this real desire for something more, and then the Mormons come along with this program, and, and students are joining, and as they join, some of them adopt the, the theology as a Lamanite, and it tells them, look, your, your unfortunate circumstances can be remedied. There is a better future for you. And, and they get optimistic, and they hope, and there's this, this message that's coming from Kimball and others about uh, restored people. And, and for, so, for, for many of them, this is an exciting promise of a, of a better future, while for others, admittedly, there were others who felt this was utterly racist, a whitewash, and a horrible thing. But, but for some, this provided them a hope that they could survive, that they could succeed in schools, that they could compete with white people, that they, they too could have an office with air conditioning one day. And so for some, it's a message of hope, um, you know, that, that really inspired them to, to rise up. There was a great poem. Um, there's a couple of poems. The, the church would host these competitions for the Lamanite conferences. In order to participate, you had to, to often you had good grades or, or win a competition. And there's a couple of poems that come out of the Lamanite conference competitions that really convey these these children. I mean, they're teen, teenage children, right? Their 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 feelings about how they love their Lamanite identity and how they are inspired by it and how it gives them strength. And now they know they're a child of God and you know, you can really look at that in two ways, as, as, as they've been whitewashed and assimilated, they don't know any better, or, my goodness, look at how inspired they are. And I'm not sure it's my place to judge them, but there's, there are definite different responses to that identity. Now, what happened later on, I want to get into a little bit later on some individual experiences of, of uh, and there are many accounts of, uh, you know, the students who participate in the program, and uh, there's culture uh, clash as well, um, but... What happened when this this new identity, being Lamanite, uh, a, a in, for some of the students it was ennobling, right? It was it was it was inspirational. Uh, others it didn't work out. What happened when that clashed? And a little later on, maybe initially, but a little later on, with uh, Red Power, who activists you know organized protests in Salt Lake City, denounced LDS colonization. What happened when those two ideas uh, collided? Maybe. Uh, you know, yeah. more directly later on. Right. So in by the 1970s, Native American activism groups are rising up. From the 1960s on, really starting to see this term of self-determination, that Native people should be in charge of their own futures. And so they're reclaiming boarding schools, and they're reclaiming uh, colonial institutions that would have formerly been used to assimilate them. Now they're claiming them for their own. There's Native Americans on school boards, and... And there's these open protests against some of these institutions, for example, the Mormon Church. And so in 1972 and 73, there's protests at Temple Square. Um, the, uh, the famous uh, Trail of Broken Treaties protest stops in Salt Lake uh, briefly to demand some sort of uh, payment or, or apology for the uh, colonial, colonial assimilation of Native Americans. And so there's definitely a, a clash. Um, but... Native Americans themselves are not united. It's important to keep in mind that a lot of these high-profile activist things like the American Indian Movement, 
they really are themselves in sort of a one of many types of Indians. Most Native Americans, especially Navajos, were not particularly interested in activism at all. They were on their reservation, living their lives. If they were participating, it was locally. It wasn't in any sort of big, loud protest. But nevertheless, you do have this emerging activist Indian identity, which is in contrast to a more traditional Native American. There's one activist by the name of Clyde Warrior who gives this great essay about the different types of Indians. And he He's, it's, it's fairly, uh, you know, uh, he, he details that there's this, this drunk Indian, and he says there's this Indian that's the sellout Indian, and there's this Indian that's different types of Indians. And the activist Indian is closest to the true Indian, who knows his culture, that's active. So there's really a debate within the Native community itself about what is a real Indian. And it's in that context that the Lamanite identity is now also in play for some people. And the Lamanite identity... And the activist Indian identity are both very much about self-lift and uprising and climbing out of this poverty and, and believing that you're capable. It's just that the activist Indian identity is much more confrontational um, and much more interested in expelling any outside influences, while the Lamanite identity is happy to build on and use the outside influences of the Mormon Church's theology and doesn't believe in confrontation nearly as much. There's an article in the Enzyme from this time period about that's mocking some of the uh, the activist Indians and, and pointing to how the BYU Lamanite Indians, they protest by productive work like uh, going and painting homes and cleaning up streets and doing these sorts of behaviors and not by going out and protesting with signs and claiming lands and occupying spaces. So there's different types of Indian identities that are in competition in the 1970s and None of them necessarily having the authority as the Indian, but all of them competing for that that title. Yeah, uh, I point out that Ensign is is the main church of uh, main um, magazine of the, the LDS Church. Uh, so, uh, good Indian behavior, bad Indian behavior. It gets into identity. Um, and as I'm thinking through this, I'm 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 coming to this from an interesting personal perspective. My my father is one quarter Ojibwe, intensely proud of that. Felt in some ways that he was Indian. Um, and also Mormon, and, and so he, he saw things through that lens. I'm sure that's why our family participated in, in the program. And, uh, you know, he wanted to, to help out, um, you know, the Indian kids. On the other hand, I can, I can well see the, the perspective of Red Power activists who see this as just crude assimilation. You're, you're taking people away from their, their culture. And they're they're going to living and breathing in in the white culture. They're they're going to be in, affected by that. And you know, even even among the Lamanites, though those who are the self proclaimed Lamanites that adopt that identity, even among them, there's a bit of a schism about some of them leaning more towards red power, some of them leaning more towards a more uh, how to say docile or more compliant behavior towards the church. Uh, and that plays out at BYU with these young college age Indian kids. Some of them who want to participate in traditional dances. Meanwhile, BYU authorities, Paul Phelps says, no, I don't want the traditional dances. Those are apostates. Those are bad. Those are the old culture. We need to get rid of that. And so there, there is even a little bit of debate among, you know, Lamanite Indians about what exactly is a Lamanite and, and what element, how far do we go in one direction or the other, and what's a true Indian. What are you have a table in the in the book uh, reasons why uh, families uh, Indian families 
had their kids participate, reasons why students uh, participated. What were the top reasons why, why families sent their, their kids to, to Mormon families? Well, I think, it, you know, things change over time. I think early on, the, the clear reason for people sending their kids was for education, that Navajos were really quite desperate for education. They had launched a bunch of programs that were not really working to build more schools. Uh, the Navajo Nation was being led by boarding school graduates themselves, but the general population among Navajos was still a little bit weary about schools. But that, that leadership, that tribal council, really pressed the idea of more and more schools were necessary. And they were ha- starting to have a lot of success by the 1940s, especially after World War II. World War II brought in a cash economy to the reservation. People were able to go out the reservation and work in the you know, munitions factories or wherever else in Phoenix and Salt Lake. And they really saw what the white world had to offer. And a lot of them liked it. They liked the money. They liked some of the, the opportunities they had that the, they were no longer going to be in poverty, that they could have something. And so when they came back to the reservation after the war, there was an increased desire for white man's education. Uh, in Tribal Council, there's a, one of the councilmen, Sam Gorman, gives this great speech where he talks about how being uh, an Indian without an education is like being a bird with its wings cut off and that we need to have our wings so we can fly. We need an education. And so there's this desperate desire for schooling and a perception that even if you could get into a boarding school, which you necessarily probably couldn't, they were overcrowded, but even if you could, the quality of education was just not very good. But if you could get into a white family's education, if you could move into Richfield or Utah or eventually into Idaho and California with one of these white foster families who will take care of you, you'll get a better education. You'll also get people who care about you more. I mean, in the boarding schools, they were notorious for bullies and for violence and for kids running the gauntlet and all sorts of abuse. And and you don't have to get that. You can go to a foster family that will take care of you, get a better education. So really, education was the driving focus, I think, the driving force for most of these people in the early years. But then after you get a generation or two of graduates, many of them adopting a Lamanite identity, feeling like they're Mormon, uh, increasingly those spiritual reasons becomes an, an interest. A lot of them say, well, I want my kid to get off the reservation, to get out of alcohol, and to get out of these problems I see, the poverty, uh, and I want him to have a spiritual journey. It's kind of like for Mormons today, going on a mission is sort of the spiritual journey that is a part of your identity that creates who you are. In a real way, I think that a lot of these parents thought, if I can get my kid on placement, they'll have the spiritual journey, they'll have this, these good influences, they'll get a good education as well. And so we, we actually have some statistics that come out of a few different research projects that the church ran to try to figure out you know, how the program was going and why people were signing up and why they were quitting. And those show us pretty clearly that education is by far the top choice, but spiritual motivation was really a secondary and a significant choice for a lot of people as well. And then there's a variety of other smaller reasons, but those are the two driving forces for sure why people signed up. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that thread of religion. Uh, One of the criticisms... Uh, of uh, cultural assimilation has to do with religion, right? Uh, that that uh, you know, you just, we, we colonize, we impose our uh, Western religion on people. Mormonism, has, you know, is included in that criticism, I'm sure, but it has a twist. This this idea of, of Lamanites, this for some, you know, some Indians, uh, 
feel like this is an ennobling new identity. Uh, we'll talk more about that and uh, get into uh, individual experiences. Uh, I want to hear some of the stories of, of, of uh, some of the individual students. Uh, we're talking with Matthew Garrett. He is professor of history at Bakersfield College and author of Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program. Uh, it's out from University of Utah Press. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Kane College of the Arts Visiting Artists and Scholars Series presents Designing for Trauma Relief, Crafting Effective Spaces for the Disadvantaged by Jill Paybell, Monday, October 17th at 7 p.m. in the USU Kane Performance Hall. Details at cca.usu.edu. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Utah Debate Commission to broadcast several debates this election season. Next up is a debate featuring candidates for U.S. Senate. Republican incumbent Mike Lee faces off against his Democratic challenger Misty Snow. This debate will originate from Brigham Young University, and it's Wednesday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. It's tempting here, I'll be honest with you, to just play the tape and let you see if you recognize the voice. It doesn't matter if you're 2 or 92, you still want to be told a story. And I think from an early age, it was something that I was drawn to. How'd you do? I'm Kai Rizdahl, the life and times of Brian Cranston. Next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Matthew Garrett. He is professor of history at Bakersfield College, author of a new book out from University of Utah Press. It's called Making Lamanites. It's winner of the Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies. From 1947 to 2000, some 50,000 Native American children left the reservations to live with Mormon foster families. And uh, the in Indian Student Placement Program emerged in the mid-20th century, championed by Apostle Spencer W. Kimball, lined with the then-national preferences to terminate tribal identities and assimilate indigenous people. Uh, but as the paradigm shifted to self-determination, critics labeled the program as crudely assimilationist. Making Lamanites traces the student experience within the contested cultural and institutional landscapes to reveal how and why many of these Native youth adopted a new notion of Indianness. Uh, so, Matthew Goodhart, I want to pick up the, the strain of religion you were talking about. The number one reason you said why families sent their kids was for education. Number two reason was, was religion. Um, and four reasons that we talked about earlier in the program, Mormons uh, have had an outreach, you might say, and a special interest in, in converting Indians. Um, but I'm sure there are critics, I know there are critics, who, who, just, who, who lump Mormonism within the broader uh, scope of, of Western religion and say this is part of colonialism. You're just imposing that part of your culture on, on the Indians who have, after all, their own cultures and religions. Yeah, I, I think to, to that, and that, there's quite a bit of truth to that, that criticism. I mean, if you look at the origins of the theology, it comes out of a time when that Americans felt that way, that there was colonization over the beginning of the Manifest Destiny period. I mean, the, the origins of the Church are very much, the context of it are very much in, in an imperialistic, you know, ethnocentric sort of culture. And when when Mormons find themselves competing for resources in Utah, it doesn't take long before you could really see clear parallels between the way Mormons interact with Indians and, and others. I think that there's been a, well, a lot of historians have argued that there's been a, a false sort of image of, of Mormons being sweet and nice and getting along wonderfully with Indians, when in fact there was lots of war and violence with Indians in, in early Utah history. 
And so uh, perhaps there's space for both of these interpretations, that while Mormons did have sort of standard, common, ethnocentric, even violent encounters with Native Americans early on, there was also space for some theology there that really called on Mormons to try to help Indians and to elevate them and to assimilate them. And I think both of those still fit into that larger criticism, though, of trying to assimilate Native Americans. And that's, that, you... that, that's a genuine criticism, right? Yeah. I wonder if you could compare and contrast the Indian student placement program with the boarding schools. I know that one one of the reasons listed sure. in the families was, uh, you know, better experience perhaps with Mormon foster families than, than they found in in the boarding schools. Some some uh, boarding school uh, students had a good experience, uh, and you hear really bad stories as well. Yeah, boarding schools have this horrible reputation. Um, I, I'm sure some had good experiences, but by and large, the way that boarding schools are remembered is, is very negatively. That from a young age, they would scoop up children and take them off to school. Uh, back in the 1880s or so, when boarding schools began, uh, they're not—they're a brand new idea. It's a way to whitewash Indian children and to strip them of their identity. Uh, It—it continues up until probably well, well through the 1920s, when Navajos and others are really trying to avoid and hide from these boarding school agents. Indian police or Indian agents would come through the reservation looking for children. They would um, forcibly take them. They would withhold rations. They would drag these kids out, and it was really designed as a way to whitewash them. They put them in the schools. They cut their hair. They put them in surplus military uniforms. They marched them along with bells, uh, and they, they really treated them like they were in some sort of military prison. They renamed them. They took away their names and gave them names like Washington, Sheridan, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and and they stripped them of identity in a very over-aggressive manner. And so by contrast to that, and also the violence that occurred there between kids, the placement program seemed to many Navajos as a much more desirable way to get an education. Now, still by our modern values, we could say that is clearly still assimilation, and it was. But in the eyes of the Navajo in 1940, 45, 50, this seems like a much better route to get an education than being subjected to the boarding schools where they had insufficient food, insufficient resources, violence, and and this aggressive, you know, uh, capital, uh, not capital, but, um, um, physical punishment. Um, you know, kids would be punished by sent out to the grass and cut all the grass with a pair of scissors or run through a belt line where all the kids would hit them. There, there were really harsh experiences in these boarding schools. And so uh, certainly Navajos jumped at the chance for some sort of other way to get an education uh, that wasn't quite so brutal. Uh, in fact, in, in the book, uh, you quote uh, Jim Dandy. He's, I think, a Navajo. He said one of one of the yeah. earlier experiences. He uh, the the people came around. The government agents came around to round up all the kids, take them to boarding schools. His family hid him in a, a wool pit, covered him covered him up. Later on, he ended up in a boarding school. He he had some bad experiences, got beat up, you know, and and those sorts of things. Um, so I wonder, um, from the perspective of uh, of a kid. Uh, take me through. So the the family signs the kid up for the the yeah. the foster program. You get on a bus, and what a, a day later or something, you're uh, you're you're right. in you're in Mormon suburbia. The the first step would be that the you have to get found, and you'd be found probably at a boarding school. Boarding school started at about age six usually, and so you'd be going to boarding school. Uh, in the case of 
some of them uh, missionaries would come to the boarding schools and try to teach little lessons and kind of recruit kids. Or you might hear about it because uh, one of your friends was on it, and he told you there's some really good Christmas presents if you join this thing. Or maybe missionaries came through and they took students on a ride to a, to an activity. There was a basketball tournament you signed up for. So there's lots of ways you'd find out about it, but eventually once the missionaries discovered you, they'd come to your home and they would talk to you and your parents and try to persuade everyone that this was a good idea. Um, there's been some questions about how much pressure they applied. Uh, we have a couple of surveys that, that indicate that they probably didn't apply a lot of pressure. They didn't need to. It was just such a better option than the boarding schools that Navajos were happy to do it. So the parents would sign the paperwork. A uh, caseworker would come out and would interview to make sure that things were okay and on the up and up and would go over the, uh, the handbook with them. A lot of these parents don't speak English, so I'm sure that those were not the most useful discussions at times. But uh, oftentimes the church employed former missionaries from the Southwest who spoke a little Navajo. But even still, uh, there's probably some lack of communication really happening in those meetings. But at any rate, the kids would sign up, and then uh, come fall time when school starts, they would, be, they would go to some local center, perhaps a, some parking lot or a church building or something, and a, a large bus, Greyhound bus or something would pull up. And the kids would all load up with their suitcase, and, and they would drive through the night until they got into, uh, early on, they all went to Richfield. That was the processing center in the early years of the program. And so they drove through the night, and they would play on the bus, and they would have a little bit of fun. Well, first day, as they left the parking lot, I'm sure there was a lot of tears shed. Um, there's a great autobiography by George P. Lee where he talks about how much they're just crying and weeping, and there's this ebb and flow of the tears when one person like, start stop crying, and then then someone starts crying, and they all start crying, and then, and so there's there's definitely the emotional. I'm I'm leaving leaving home. It's sad, uh, but there's also this excitement. You know, they they get there in the morning, they get off the bus, everything's new and different. They're at a stake center in Richfield, and they unload one by one, and they get name tags, and they're brought into the these large building, the the center of the the, the building, the the cultural hall. It's called in the Mormon churches. And there they play basketball or entertain briefly while they process the kids one by one. They take some of them out. They walk them through a medical checkup. They have volunteer nurses and doctors. They'll even get to the point where they have x-ray machines and dental things, and they're going to expect to make sure everyone is reasonably healthy. A lot of Navajos were not healthy because of all the poverty and just the bad resources on the reservation. This process actually discovered and work to fix a lot of illness and problems. And if it was something too severe, they would send them off to the children's hospital to be worked on. But typically, they'd move it through the dental and the medical checkup. Uh, they'd get a shower. Uh, for some students, I'm sure this must have been, for many students, I'm sure this must have been a little bit dehumanizing to have someone pick through you and look over you and inspect you like you're a piece of meat. Um, but it was part of the process to ensure that you weren't bringing lice into the home or other diseases that would cause severe uh, consequences down the road. Uh, and then they bring them back to the large room. They fed them breakfast. They paired them up with their families, and they sent them uh, off you know, with these with these LDS families that were they're paired up with. And they they try to pair them up with families that they thought would meet their needs. Perhaps if there were a lot of boys in a family and they had a, a Navajo boy, they put him with that family because he could fit in with the other boys or something. Or kids of a similar age, they tried, but that didn't always work out. And as they got more and more students and not enough foster parents, they they got a little more desperate in their placements. But they tried to match them up as best they could. And then uh, they would drive home, and oftentimes the student would cry, uh, have homesickness. The first couple months would be tough. Uh, I think I wrote in the text about one kid who's 
foster parents stopped and got them ice cream to try to soothe them, that there was an effort to try to soothe these kids, that they, you know, homesickness, and they'd get to the new home and all these new things, especially in the early years, 1950s, they'd find things like electricity, indoor electricity. It was fascinating. They'd play with the light switches and the television and the telephone, and, and they were in, just in awe of it. It was like going to Disneyland. That's what um, George Peely wrote. He said it was like going to Disneyland. Is There's all these new weird things and experiences. And they learned to have a, a different culture impressed upon them. They, for example, a, a culture, a different type of hygiene. On the reservation, they might have had, some of them, a dirt floor in their growing up. But here in the white world, you're expected to take a shower every day. You're given certain types of food. A lot of them noticed that the, the food was this weird abundance of food. There was just so much of it. And their tastes changed. I recall one story of a girl. She went back to the reservation in the summer, as they all did. And her mom was a little bit annoyed because the girl only wanted to eat salad after living in the white world so long. And that's apparently what her family ate, and salad wasn't really available on the Navajo reservation. So their dietary interests changed, their hygiene expectations changed. The way that they saw themselves in the world, it, it changed. And they spent nine months out of the year in these families, and every summer they went back. But nine months out of the year, that's the majority of the time. And so gradually things start to change in their, these kids, not just their hygiene and their and their diet, but the way they view themselves. They're sitting through family meetings that talk about Indians and Lamanites and how the Lamanites are going to be restored, and there's this excitement about how this could be you. And, you know, this is very, this is a lot of weight to place on a 10-year-old child or a 12-year-old child. And so they start to think of themselves differently. As they attend schools, they become the token Indian. And, and instead of being discriminated against, like you might expect, oftentimes we see that they were treated as sort of these these really cool, neat, exciting novelties, and, and, oh my gosh, there's a real Indian in my school. And, and they, were, they often were, were you know, treated in a way that was a little bit still racist, but not as negative as it could have otherwise been. Hmm. So they, at any rate, they go back at the end of the summer, and then when they get home in the reservation, they have to fit in there and kind of switch hats and become a different person again. And, and they live in two worlds. A lot of them talked about how there's like two worlds, they all had two worlds, doctrine that they have to live in two different places and try to navigate those. And I want to pick that up, uh, living in two worlds and uh, sort of uh, carrying that weight. Um, but I, we have a couple of uh, emails. By the way, you can join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can call us. Our toll-free number is 800-826-1495, 826 1495 uh, so these uh, two emailers uh, are uh, treating uh, very similar subjects. I'll read them together and then have you uh, respond, Professor Garrett. Uh, first up is from Alec, who says, uh, Back in the old days, the concept that the Indians were a lost tribe of Jews was as plausible as any other theory. It is interesting and somewhat depressing, says Alec, that this narrative of their origins has continued to this day. Despite all evidence to the contrary, how do faithful Mormons reconcile their incorrect doctrine, as Alec uh, characterizes it, with, on Native American origins? And then Glenn uh, has emailed us. He says, recently the LDS Church had to pull back on their blanket designation of Native Americans as Lamanites. Genetic science has found markers which place the Native people more closely with Northern Asian people rather than those of Middle Eastern re region. It seems that the church was misapplying a legacy to large groups of people. I wonder how your guest deals with this 
And uh, with the apparent cognitive dissonance therein, the genetic discoveries seem to come and go with very little notice, both in and out of the church. So that's Alec and Glenn. Yeah. Well, Alec is certainly absolutely correct that the idea of Native Americans being lost to Israelites was a totally plausible idea in 1830 that there had been several other well-known books, many several of which we, we were pretty confident Joseph Smith had access to, that that indicate this narrative. Um, so so that that was something that would have been a reasonable guess at the time, and and yes, they're both correct that modern-day science tells us that it is more likely that Native people have come from Asia. We have DNA studies and we have linguistic studies that both show, show that there was something like three to five migrations from Asia. Uh, and yes, the Church has stepped back a little bit in recent years, uh, changing the introduction to the Book of Mormon, which once said that the Native Americans are the principal descendants of, of these, these Book of Mormon people, to instead saying that they're among the descendants. And then more recently, I think the Church has released those these essays that are online and available for those who are seeking uh, and these kind of pseudo-scholarly essays, and one of them is focused on this very issue and, and kind of pitches in a, an interesting bottleneck theory of population growth and, and depopulation and, and basically asserts that it's quite possible, scientifically speaking, that a group of people could have come to America and they could have had their DNA and their population uh, almost completely wiped out by the rise and fall of other populations that are interacting and as disease and warfare drives down the population, and then there's new growth and more disease and warfare, and, and ultimately, this article, this essay says that it's, it's still possible, but yes, the Church has certainly backed away from the certainty of this is who the Native Americans are to some of them might have some blood sort of position, and it's, it's also evident if you look at general conference discussions, you know, in the 1970s, when the placement program and all the Indian programs were at their height, we had the BYU Indian program, we had Indian Seminary, but all these programs, uh, the word Lamanite shows up all over the place in general conference. There's an excitement about it, right? But over the last couple decades, if you look, the word Lamanite shows up maybe once or twice every decade. It's just really not popular at all anymore. So there's an aversion to discussing it, really. And it's not a conscious, we're not going to talk about it attitude, but it seems to have fallen away from the focus, kind of like it did back in the 18. 90s and 1870s or 1850s and 40s when, when the church early plans for you know baptizing and converting Native Americans didn't work out so well and they just sort of shifted their focus to other issues and so I think that's how the church is sort of handling it today that they those those theologies are still there for those who are interested but they're not really an emphasis and it allows people to reconcile it by simply not addressing it don't have to worry about it you just don't focus on that part of the, the gospel even though clearly the Book of Mormon is about natives, about these Lamanite people, and it's the center scripture of the Church, it's something that you can somehow look past if you're if you desire to do so. Uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of people in in the Church would you know take it on a, a, as a matter of faith, and uh, as Glenn says, it's uh, you know you 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 don't focus on 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 the science; you focus on the faith. Um, so, Alec and Glenn, thank you um, so much. Uh, we're talking with uh, Matthew Garrett, author of Making Lamanites, and we have a caller. Uh, Logan has uh, joined us. So thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Hi. Uh, uh, Gary, this isn't to uh, challenge any of your narrative. I'm sure the good heart, the good intentions, the kindness, uh, they're all true narratives. But there's a 
an 800-pound gorilla in the room here that needs discussing, and that can be wrapped up simply in the phrase white and delightsome. Uh, in the 70s, prior to the shift from white and delightsome to pure and delightsome in the Book of Mormon, uh, when the uh, Lamanites were brought into these homes, they were being told that if they were uh, to adopt uh, Mormonism, they too could become white and delightsome, which represents the spiritual apogee of, of humanity. Uh, I interviewed uh, over 30 Southern Paiute elders, and many of them had experiences in the placement program. And I concur with you that many of them, for many of them fleeing alcoholism, broken families, uh, lack of education, lack of opportunity, uh, the placement program was a safe place for them. But they were also subject to this counter-narrative that was a direct assault on their traditions. In the 1960 uh, Improvement Era magazine, there's actually a photo of Spencer Kimball holding up a photograph of Lamanite missionaries showing how they were becoming more white and delightsome the more they uh, embraced Mormonism and the more they proselytized. Here's a quote from a young Mormon or Paiute gal, Southern Paiute, she was from Moapa. I was raised in a Mormon placement home, raised in religion. That's what I was taught, was to be Mormon. It makes me wonder now. Because I was around Indian people said, how could you allow those people to tell you those stories? They told me as a child that if I believe the religion, I will turn white and delightsome. You're talking to a five or six-year-old here to turn white if I believe your way. Well, that stuck with me. Um, I have conversations with my Paiute friends about which Paiute uh, survived or persisted more strongly, the Utah Paiute, who were embraced with this notion of elevation and trans uh, transmission and transformation, who were, uh, again, having their tradition assaulted. Uh, and the Nevada Paiute, who were simply basically shot on site uh, in certain situations, and uh, the jury is not in. Uh, spiritually, as a final note, uh, one thing that I did find and was striking to me was that there is a very deep uh, connection between the Paiutes who have embraced Mormonism and the, uh, and the Mormon Church that doesn't get discussed. And it, it, it revolves around this notion of visioning and dreaming and spirituality. And the Indians, of course have uh, have lived this spirituality for thousands of years. <laughs> I'm white, and for white people, you know, we're, we're rooting for the Mormon Church uh, it, because there aren't, uh, it didn't go well for Joan of Arc and for other Christians who attempted to embrace and incorporate this powerful uh, spiritual stream back into our culture. But if you were looking for uh, guidance or a teacher... Uh, for visioning and dreaming, and you had a choice between a, I don't know, an Indian elder and, a, and some, someone from a culture that's recently faced off with this spirituality, and I think, I think the choice is obvious. But I guess I just want to uh, hear Gary's thoughts about this idea of white and delightsome and what a profoundly uh, disturbing 
idea it is and how powerfully uh, damaging it is to lay an idea like that on an, uh, an already exposed uh, problematic child who is struggling for their own identity. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Uh Thanks, Logan. I appreciate that uh, that experience is uh, talking with uh, with several Southern Paiutes, um, and it's uh, by the way, it's Matthew. So, uh, Matthew Garrett, uh, your your response? Yeah, Logan. Thank you so much. I think you're you're right on. Um, clearly, there's been a this, this term "whitened alliance." Some is troublesome that we've now moved away, and that clearly, uh, Kimball and others taught openly that, that Native Americans would have a light skin. I think there's even a general conference uh, talk that he gave that has a line that includes that. Uh, so yeah, that acts absolutely was was part of theology that was taught in the 1960s and 70s, and that is a heavy thing to place on a small child. Uh, the kids that entered the program, usually at age eight, uh, up until age you know 16, 17, 18, they're being taught this for nine months out of the year, and that's part of that you know that's difficult to reconcile. Uh, it also, I think that one of the hardest parts to deal with is how do you deal with, clearly there are those who, re, who reject that, who felt this was racially offensive, and, and they have ample reason to feel that way, right? And then there are those who, who openly adopted the Lamanite identity and all of its trappings, and, I'm, and I struggle to understand how to make sense of that, because as you point out, this is a very racially charged, I mean, they're talking about skin color changing and race identity changing. And how does one reconcile that in their own hearts? And I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, but I know that that's obviously a, a very difficult thing to, to address. Um, I think that when I've read people arguing over identity, uh, they've not, those who, who claim to be Lamanites don't typically invoke the white and delightsome. Those who criticize clearly do, because it's an obvious weakness. But those who, who embrace the Lamanite identity, I don't hear them talk about how they're going to be white and delightsome. I hear them instead talk about how they're industrious or how they're um, spiritual or how or even how they're more Navajo than someone else. Um, but there seems to be perhaps similar to our previous discussion about um, overlooking the origins. There seems to be an ability for some people to simply overlook that particular element and instead absorb the things that they find to be more ennobling and maybe not really address that as much as they, as we'd like them to. I don't know. Uh, Matthew Garrett is with us uh, for another about six minutes, and he's author of Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program. It's out from University of Utah Press. Uh, and uh, so you have another uh, about five or six minutes to respond to the program. Hope that you will. Here's our toll-free number, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, here's an email from Caleb who says, it's kind of frustrating listening to your guest gloss over the damage that the program caused because of its underlying racism. As a black man who attended BYU in the 2000s, who was constantly reminded that my black skin was a result of my ancestors not being valiant in the preexistence, I can appreciate the spiritual violence that pl that places on a, on a child. Uh, Matthew Garrett, your response. Uh, I'm sorry. It's not my intent to gloss over it. Uh, I just sort of maybe assume that some of that's understood, but you're right, absolutely, that there's uh, definitely that can be disruptive and difficult for a lot of people, uh, and it makes sense that it would be. Um, but at the same time, there seems to be this group of people that that embrace it, and I'm not sure how to make sense of that, because 
clearly I understand, and I think we all understand, the damage uh, that is done by by what you term the spiritual racism, race, race uh, racial violence, spiritual violence. Sorry, I think it was. But 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 how do we make sense of them, those who 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 embrace it? And and that's I guess something I'm struggling to understand. And so when I in my book, for example, I I don't make a judgment call. I try to simply lay out different opinions that people have and let them speak. Um, because I, I don't know that I'm in a place to decide who's authentic and who's not. And what do you do with, for example, there's a guy named Tom Ranger in Navajo, uh, served in the, went into the placement program, uh, totally bought in and believes he's a Lamanite, uh, served as a missionary in the Southwest Indian Mission. He's out on the reservation wearing his white shirt and tie, and he's teaching, trying to teach other, other Navajos about the church. And some, some Navajos came up to him and, at the county fair, and they said, you, are, sir, are a sellout. You're not a real Indian. You're inauthentic. And they had a bit of a dispute over it, right? And Tom Ranger was frustrated. He felt like his own identity was being robbed from him now. Now, this identity that he has, it's, it's an adopted Lamanite identity, but nevertheless, he felt challenged, and he felt like he was being called inauthentic. And he responds back, yelling at them in, in Navajo language, to which they didn't understand. And, and he thought, well, now, wait a minute. You don't speak Navajo. You're not the real Navajos. I'm the real Navajo. And so I guess my point in this is that I think a lot of people who adopt Lamanite identity probably sidestep the issues of skin color, which could be so offensive to many of us listening and watching. I don't know how they do it necessarily, but they seem to do it in a way that allows them to embrace the parts they like and maybe sort of look the other way on the things they don't. And I'm not validating and justifying and saying it's okay, but apparently it seems to have happened. And that's what I think is fascinating, that there's these fine competing claims for authenticity and identity when, I don't know who's right, I think they all have some claim to truth there. And and Caleb was making an assumption, which may be be correct, uh, that the the program must have caused damage because of uh, underlying racism. Um, And and you say you're not in a position to judge, but uh, looking at the narratives that you were able to look at is, uh, was there damage caused to a lot of these kids? There is a dissertation that was written by Dorothy Schmel something in 1980-ish, and it was in um, psychology, I think. And she does a study, and she says, yes, there's definitely damage. But she tends to be one of the lone voices among academics. There's also uh, a statement issued by the Child Psychiatry Association of some sort, but there's really quite a, not, not a lot of academic material there saying that there's damage. There's a lot of uh, newspaper editorials and, and people who feel frustrated and upset and have first-person experiences but we don't have a lot of academic research to rely upon to say how much damage is there. For example, are there suicides? There's not, but perhaps on the reservation after serving, there may have been. There were suicides on the reservation, so it's hard to track and really determine what are the consequences. There's a couple other reports committed, commissioned by the church to try to investigate how the program is going that investigate things like uh, likelihood to attend church, likelihood to have a bank account, likelihood to have a stable marriage, likelihood to get a divorce. And in those studies, they tend to find that the placement program graduates, they do a little bit better than average, but again, they're using a lot of Western categories to judge them, so it's not particularly useful. Um, So in the end, I guess my point is we really don't have definitive data that can tell us for sure what happened, except that we might feel that it's a little obvious that if you tell a child from a young age that they're going to become a different race that that is strange and difficult and could have some sort of consequence.
And uh, we're just about out of time, so I'll, I'll leave uh, for people to read the book and, and uh, read some of these experiences of, uh, of kids going back and forth between cultures. Very interesting. And, and uh, I was going to have you read a passage. We won't have time for that. Uh, a foster family that actually took a trip to Arizona, I think it was. And uh, that was a very interesting, uh, you know, kind of bridging the, the culture divide. And it put the young uh, Indian student in a, in a very awkward position. You, you got your foster parents and your, your parents and uh, awkward to, to kind of bridge those two worlds. Uh, what I do want to have you do, and we just have one minute re- remaining, Matthew Garrett, um, what, what has been the outcome then in, in kind of majority in, in, in the lives of Indian students uh, in this Indian student placement program? Some 50,000, um, and yeah. so that's, that's a lot of uh, Indian kids. What, what has been generally the, the result in, in their lives? Well, you know, many of them, they left the program, and we don't really know much about how that changed their lives, and others we know are opposed to it, and others seem to have embraced it. Uh, some of them went on to serve in leadership capacities on the Navajo Reservation. Some of them went on to get advanced degrees and serve in leadership capacities among white people. Uh, of course, there's the famous incident we didn't get to, uh, uh, George P. Lee, who, who uh, was a graduate of the program, who, who served as president of a college. Uh, and then had his own fallout with the church over many of these same issues and feeling like the church was was actually turning away from from policies that he liked. But that's another interesting story for another time. So the overall impact for people, I think, is is just absolutely varied. And while some are very hurt, and rightfully so, others feel like they're blessed. And and it really just comes down to an individual experience. Well, very interesting book, and uh, and hits a lot of very interesting topics, as evidenced by the response of, of our listeners to, to the program. Uh, the book is uh, Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program, 1947 to 2000. It's out from the uh, University of Utah Press, winner of the Juanita Brooks Prize in Mormon Studies, and uh, Matthew Garrett, who is professor of history at Bakersfield College, has joined us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I uh, hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. We'll have J.D. Vance, author of Hillbill Elegy. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.